This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode 17 for May 2012, and our topic is Lancelot du Lac, the 1974 film by Robert Brisson. Your hosts for this episode, as usual, are Ken Moorfield, that's me, and Todd Truffin. That's me. This is not a spoiler-free discussion. So, Todd, we had picked Lancelot du Lac in part because I was getting my geek fanboy cinephile hat on, getting ready to go to the Robert Brisson retrospective that's going to be playing in Santa Monica in, in May, and that gave me an opportunity to talk about Robert Brisson. I have seen, actually, all of Brisson's films, so I'm looking forward to seeing some of them on the big screen. You had, I think, prior to this, this is your first time seeing Lancelot. Uh, yes. What other experience have you had with Robert Brisson? Well, we'd um, seen, what, the Diary of Country Priest, um, the Pickpocket, uh, which was, I think that was my first Brisson mm-hmm. film, and um, was you know, pretty stunned by the, the tension of that story. On the one hand, there's not a lot of action in it, but wow. The tension just gets ratcheted up and up and up, um, and then um, I don't I forget the name of the film about the the escape. A man escaped. A man escaped uh, about a, a prison break, and um, so that was pretty much my you know. I'd, I'd certainly heard about some of his other films, um, his Joan of Arc film. I haven't seen it, but mm-hmm. you know, heard about it. I had begun Abathasar, but hadn't finished it. Life got in the way. So I've had a, yeah, I've had some exposure okay. to Brisson's so, film. So I should have a shout out. Several of the films that Todd had mentioned are available in America on Region One DVDs, but uh, some of them are not. Last I had checked, The Trial of Joan of Arc is still only available on Region Two, and The, the Devil probably only on Region Two. Uh, some of them are available via the Criterion Collection on mm-hmm. Hulu, uh, if you subscribe to Hulu or Hulu um, Hulu Plus. But uh, the reason I bring that up is that if you're intrigued by the podcast and you don't know Bresson, I encourage you to go to the website where we'll put some links to the touring retrospective. Uh, part of the reason we're having a touring retrospective of Robert Bresson's films this year is because it's the 25th anniversary of... James Quant's famous book or anthology of film criticism, which I uh, has been revised and reissued, I have in front of me right now, uh, and we'll provide a link for that on on Amazon as well. It's called Robert Bresson or Robert Bresson Revised, and it's uh, edited by James Quant. It has a number of film critics names that would be familiar to anyone who's remotely into film criticism. Uh, talking about Brisson, there's essays or excerpts from interviews by Paul Schrader, uh, Andre Bazin, Susan Sontag. There's um, a chapter by Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardan, who are 
important spiritual filmmakers in their own right. Roland Barthes would be a name that would be familiar to any literary critic. Uh, Michael Haneke, uh, who, uh, again, is another filmmaker. Uh, so if you are interested in the ways in which, even if you've never heard of Robert Brisson, I would make the argument that you have been influenced by his work <laughs> through uh, some of these filmmakers that are, are currently working. I and just noticed in the table of contents that you were flipping through there that um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Patti Smith also has yes. um, um, an essay. So the, the influence goes beyond film and into music and other areas. I think the third time I'd seen Lancelot, I'm assuming it's your first time. It's my first yeah. Uh, how did it compare to the other films that you had seen from Bresson? Was there things that were new, things that were different, or things that were the same? Um, well, uh, certainly. I mean, one thing is that it was the first Bresson film I had seen that was in color. Yes. He he shifted early films in black and white. And then the move into color. And so that was surprising. I don't I don't attach a lot of meaning to that. Some of the interviews I've read with him, that seemed to be an issue that people kept talking about. And I was kind of like, well, the industry was moving to color. I mean. Right. Um, and There's a particularly funny one that we read excerpts of from Paul Schrader, where Paul Schrader was trying to make a comment about his earlier films versus the later films. And Brisson said, I, I almost wonder somewhat slyly, yeah. oh, are you just saying that because it's in color? Yes. There is plenty that I recognized in terms of style. Mm-hmm. Um, you know these uh, the the acting in Brisson films. Well, I, it's hard to say that it's acting. He wants he asks asks his actors. In fact, I think he called he didn't call them actors. He calls them models mm-hmm. to deliver the lines in, in as flat an affect as possible, um, and that certainly carries through um, in this film. The visual style is I find very interesting because quite often he is focusing just about anywhere but what we would think of as the center of action. Specifically thinking of there's a, a jousting tournament, and you see the horse's feet, you see the shield, you see flags. You see the hand, you see the, the hand, hand in the, la- <laughs> the lance. But you never actually see the joust. You will see the, the man falling off a horse, but the actual impact, the actual shot of the two horses running together that we have come to expect when we see, oh, it's medieval times, they're jousting. Mm. Um, no. And I think that's very interesting. And I don't know what to make of it. Right. It's... Or you'll see a door open, and then the person walking in, you'll see them from, like, shoulder to knee. Yeah. But you won't see their, their <laughs> face of the whole body. Or you'll see it through several doorways. Yeah. And you know the person entering, who's very obviously the person talking, you hear the voice. But it'll be three or four doorways, and you'll just kind of see part of the person walking in. I mean, it, it does some very interesting things with, in some ways, showing us the effect of what's happening as opposed to showing us the thing. Yeah, so I think you had touched on the one stylistic element that I think is most typical for me of a Brisson film, which is that lack of emotional affect. We yes. tend to associate it with acting because many actors are actorly <laughs> and, and, and emote. Uh, I certainly notice it as well in, in some, in disjunction with a modern Hollywood movie with the use of sound. Mm-hmm. 
the soundtrack on Lancelot is there's a lot of bagpipe music, but it's within someone playing the bagpipe right. or the horses whinnying. There's not the traditional soundtrack that we have. I can never pronounce this word that my film critics say. Ex- exegetic music, you know, music that's designed to mm-hmm. tell you how to feel about the action that's right. uh, going on. It's all natural sound. Uh, right. So that, that increases that sort of flatness of emotion. Uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about specifically with Lancelot that I picked up from doing what you mentioned, which was going to look at what some <laughs> of the critics had said. I got from this um, uh, article in the Quant Anthology by Kristen Thompson, uh, where she was writing an essay specifically about Lancelot. The title was The Sheen of Armor, The Winnies of Horses, Sparse Parametric Style, and Lancelot du Lac. And uh, one of the things that she points out in terms of, in terms of narrative or structure, she calls the film very elliptical, as in ellipses points. And ellipses point is a punctuation. I know, Todd, you know this. I'm, for anyone else who's listening, an ellipsis point is in literature or writing, those three dots that indicate something has been taken out. Right. Uh, where you, something was there and it's not there anymore. And so in a film, for a film to be very elliptical would be as simple as what we would call classical cutting to continuity Guy gets into a car, pulls out of his driveway, uh, and then the next shot is him pulling into the parking lot of the store. Well, the action in between has been cut out, so that can be something as simple or familiar as that, uh, but it can also be something as grand or big as a scene stops and the next scene is ten years later. In fact, the two examples that I have given were ones in which we're somewhat used to that. Mm-hmm. And the film announced, oh, there is an ellipsis. <laughs> you, right. you know, the, there is an ellipsis here. Uh, but we're used to absent those cues of thinking that we're getting all of the information in terms of where scenes start mm-hmm. and where they stop. Uh, that seems very different. So there is definitely an elliptical kind of quality to the, the storytelling. Once we're in a scene, we get the scene through, but sometimes then the scenes will go, well, I see I'm fumbling this a little bit, will, will not be what we would think of as being the next scene in the traditional storytelling. You know, it right. might be, you might have three or four scenes of people getting ready to go to a party and then a scene where they're getting in the car, going to the party, and then a cut to a week later, and they're talking about the party, and you're like, hey, where's the party? Where's the party? Uh, and there's a lot of that in in Brisson's film, which makes it hard, if you're not paying attention, to get lost in very easily. Like, right. well, what happened, and what are they talking about? Well, to give an example from the film, yeah. um, I mean, in, you know, Lancelot to Locke, this is the classic tale of Lancelot and um, King Arthur, Search for the Grail. Um, in this particular film, it's set two years after the the, the quest has failed, mm-hmm. and the knights have returned, and they're kind of trying to figure out, well, what do we do now? And there is this tension between Lancelot and Guinevere, and in the film, and this is talking about we're getting lost with the elliptical stuff. Is at some point apparently Guinevere got arrested. And put in prison. Mm-hmm. And 
And now I might not have been paying the closest attention at that particular moment, but all of a sudden we get this scene and things have changed. And I, it took me a good long while to figure out, oh, she's being held captive. And where did that come from? Right. And I didn't know. I I really didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading a, a rev, you know a review afterwards, and then said, "Oh, that scene where she's in jail." I'm like, oh, that's what that was. <laughs> right. Okay. So that's a, that's a great example for talking about the elliptical style. Now, I think when we're presented with something like that, and it's unfamiliar, we have a couple of choices. We say, "Well, that's just bad filmmaking," mm-hmm. you know, or we can say, "That's." unintentional, you know, the author doesn't realize, don't you know you're supposed to put that in there? Or it's intentional. And if it's intentional, kind of, well, why? Why why do it that way? For me, I'm looking at it and and I'm saying, okay, that's got to mean something. Because he's not incompetent. He knows how to tell a story. You know, he in some sense, he's earned Mm -hmm. a little bit of consideration here so that I've got to simply, at that point, my default, you know, when faced with this kind of a problem, is like, okay, there's something going on here. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, and I think this is one of the ways in which Lancelot, for me, is different than some of the earlier films in terms of the structure of how the narrative is Mm -hmm. put together. The two ones that I'm thinking of that seem to me to be more traditional narratives are A Man Escaped, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, a concentrated narrative. But as a prison break heist, you can't just sort of say... Oh, here I am in prison planning an escape. And the next scene is I, I, I'm out. You know, part of what the movie, that movie is about is causal relationships. You right. know, what is the relationship between our actions at any one point and the end result? So the causal, the actions that we're speculating about causal relationships need to actually be spelled out for us mm-hmm. to invite them. The other one is Diary of a Country Priest, right. which is much more of a traditional narrative of the country priest interacting with his parishioners and his gradual decline in health and uh, what those things you know particularly mean, what right. you know, those actions mean. Uh, whereas this one then seems to me to be is intentional. And I think while the lack of emotional affect by the actors is the same throughout. It gets magnified when you don't have the structural mm-hmm. cues. Because in a sense, the emotion of the actors or the structural cues are ways of a film instructing you what to think. Yes. You, you know, here's what to feel. Oh, I know this is sad because the person is telling me it's sad. I know it's sad. If the person's not telling me it's sad, if they're just blank face then um, I know it's sad because the music or the filmmaker is telling me sad. Absent that, I need to pay attention to the structure and the relationship of cause and effect tells me I know this is sad because it's a sad thing that this this leads to that. Whereas uh, I I sometimes jokingly think of Brasson's films as being these giant Rorschach tasks, which (laughs) is like, we're not going to tell you anything. We're just going to strip away as much as we can and let you decide in that dragnet just right. the, just the facts or sometimes less than the facts. Well, and as you were talking, what it brought to my mind is that the structure, the story, I mean, we're dealing here with a, a tale that's been often told. Mm-hmm. You know, King Arthur, the Knights, Lancelot, this is, this story has been told 
countless times mm-hmm. in all kinds of different media. Um, the other Brisson films I, I have seen, he was not doing that. Mm-hmm. And so, in some sense, that, that straightforward narrative is almost more necessary. And I, I wonder if in this particular case, because he's, he's telling the Arthur story, or the Lancelot story, or as we were talking the other day, maybe the Gawain story, mm-hmm. um, maybe there's a sense that we know the story, so I'm going to cut out all of this, what I consider, you know, Brisson's cutting out the stuff that he considers extraneous to whatever point he's trying to make in retelling this story. Right. I, yeah, I, I mean, I would buy that with the one caveat, not in a cheeky way that we might associate with deconstruction. Right. Let's, you know, retell the story or recast the story, uh, but maybe more in a way that we might associate with the Russian formalists and the idea of defamiliarization. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about, say, the, the claymation film, The Miracle Maker, that runs into that issue of, okay, there have been so many films about the week of the passion of the Christ, and if I'm going to tell this story... How do I deal with the fact that people are so familiar with the narrative right. that they only half watch and they only half pay attention? So I'm going to do something very stylistically different mm-hmm. or find, a, you know, a different hook because that idea of defamiliarization is taking something that, uh, the audience is very familiar with and saying, how do we get you to look at it, uh, anew? So right. I, I think there could be quite likely a defamiliarizing intent. I also think that there's um, a thematic intent that is, I I do think this is a film about confusion Mm. and about, about people who are in the moment and don't necessarily know I'm a character in a film. Right. I'm a character in a legend (laughs) and therefore uh, I know how this is going to end or I know what this all means because everyone who's reading it knows what it means because they're familiar with the story, including what comes after this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the film actually does quite an interesting job of, of presenting these characters whose plot elements are so familiar to us, but getting you to look again and question the assumptions that we make about who they are or who they must be because of the story that they've right. been cast in. And for me, one of those characters was Mordred. Right. And, you know, Mordred's always kind of this just totally negative bad guy. And yet in this film, in Brisson's telling, there were more than a number of times I was kind of thinking, he's got a point. You know, he's concerned about, right. you know, Guinevere and Lancelot and this relationship they have. And, you know, that's that was a legitimate concern. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the fact that everybody else was you know, poo-pooing him and his accusations or whatever. Um, he was kind of sticking by that. And so there's something that, you know, that idea of confusion of who are we going to listen to? Mm-hmm. Who, whose accusations are true, whose are not? Well, or another example that I think we discussed a little bit the other day was uh, the whole conversation between Lancelot and Guinevere. Mm-hmm. I mean, central to the Arthurian mythos, post Camelot, the music, the learner and love <laughs> musical is that the cause of the fall of the round table is the adulterous affair. And Lancelot's wanting to go there in a very self-tortured way saying, we set out to find 
the grail. Right. And we didn't find it. And the reason why is because you've got to be pure to find the grail. And I'm not pure. My, my love for you is, you know, sinful. And there's this self-torture thing. And so the reason we didn't find the grail is because you know, God is punishing right. us. Oh, right. God is punishing us. Well, says who? Well, says everyone who reads this story, but we're not. We're in the story. We're not readers of the story. So one of the notions, certainly, that I've been playing around with with this whole elliptical structure uh, would be not so much that Auteur, Bresson in this case, figures everyone knows this story, so mm-hmm. I don't have to fill in all the plot details because sure. you'll just fill it in with what you already know. But is in fact, doing the exact opposite which is to say constantly thwarting your attempts to fill things in by everything that you know because that thematic confusion you know that that sort of structural confusion of like well wait a minute where where are we in the story yeah uh i'm half paying attention because i know where the story goes and, and now wait a minute where are we in the story it reinforces the thematic motif of confusion of like where are we? You know, these, a lot of these characters mm-hmm. are asking, where are we? Sure. Guedevere and Lancelot are asking, where are we? Arthur is asking, you know, mm-hmm. well, you, you know, where are we? Gawain is dealing with the question of, well, like, if my heroes and the people that I look up to, uh, prove to be false, well, you know, where does that, you know, where does that leave me or where does that leave us? Right. So we are supposedly a podcast that talks about Forget our interest script. You know, <laughs> themes of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. And Brasson has a reputation that is certainly high amongst the rest of the world, you know, universally, but it's particularly high among people of faith. Does then the style of the film or the content of the film have anything to say about faith? I don't know about the style. Okay. Mainly because, well, I mean, as we said, it's the first time I've seen this film, and it is certainly challenging mm-hmm. stylistically. So I wouldn't claim to have had the time yet to digest that. Uh, Content-wise, certainly some of Brisson's other films to me seem to be at least more out, you know, more out front. Um, but you know, this is the, the story of the Knights of the Round Table who were seeking after the the Holy Grail. This the cup that supposedly caught the blood of Christ on the cross and only the pure can find it. And here we've got a group of guys that had set out to find it and they can't. Um, and they're wrestling with that. Obviously either they weren't pure, mm-hmm. um, you know, or you know, they have failed in some way and spiritually and wrestling with that, that, that question, what, what next, what do we do? What does this say about us? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think you know you've you've you know spent some time on confusion, and I think that's a really good word. Mm-hmm. Um, you know they, they they're wondering: Does this mean that we are impure? Does this mean if it, if if we're if our intentions are pure? What is then? What does it mean that we couldn't find it? Um, I mean, there's just all kinds of questions, you know, running around, right? And I think that's so for me, the content, at least on this first viewing, um, certainly has some you know, pretty heavy spiritual questions. Yeah, when I approach it from the spiritual perspective mm-hmm. or the question, I find myself going back more and more to the 
introductory sort of, um, I want to say voiceover, but that's not it, the TypeScript that sort right. of sets the setting, uh, that says they've all gone to look for the, the Grail, and it's not, okay, the Grail mark, the Grail search marked the beginning of the end. It's, you know, things were at the height, and then this affair, everything kind of unraveled. Uh, things have already begun to unravel yeah. here. And so that brings me all sorts of the questions that the characters themselves are wrestling with. I mean, I think it does, the film does a good job of not letting me stand outside the film and letting me think spiritually about what's happening to them in the I know the answer, but they don't kind of, mm-hmm. as in putting me in, in their shoes uh, and saying, well, okay. Merlin is made mention of very specifically, Merlin's not in the film, but is specifically said is he's the one that sent them on this grail quest. Right. And that ends up to to be this big fiasco in which a lot of knights are killed and Arthur goes around the table and says, you know, we're shutting down the round table because we don't have enough knights because they all uh, died in this particular thing. And, and, you know, this ended up not being a good quest. And Gowing says, what do we do now? Yeah, uh, you, know, you know, how well, do we fix it? And Arthur says, "Pray, I don't know." You know, yeah. we, we gotta well, and even the thing with Lancelot and Guinevere of, you know, she mentions, you know, there's been all this robbing and killing, and mm-hmm. and, and it's like that wasn't part of the Arthur legend I remember, right? Um, and yet that is certainly part of what they show. Yeah, is, is this kind of indiscriminate, you know, pillaging of towns trying to find the Grail, mm-hmm. um, and so certainly there's that question of, you know. In search of this spiritual quest, what what methods? Mm-hmm. Now, when I teach um, Arthurian romance, one of my English classes, I ask students to attend to a lot. Not so much the setting of the Arthurian legends, like mm-hmm. when they're set, but I say anytime you get a historical romance, uh, that is to say, uh, something that's made that's set in the past then the argument I'm pretty much parroting from the Norton anthology is that that's as much about the moment that produces it mm-hmm. as it is about sure. the past. It's about our relationship in the past or what we think. And that uh, certainly if you've got these mythopoeic works that, you know, every couple of generations <laughs> uh, we get a different version of it. Then I ask students to attend to, well, what's different about this version and why, what is it about that version uh, that ties it to that period. Sure. Um, and certainly I think as a, a film that came out in 1974, uh, that was a period that seems to me to be very, uh, a very cynical and confused period mm-hmm. in politics. Brisson was French. He's not an American. America, we're dealing with uh, Vietnam and our, our sort of our own quest to go out and do something (laughs) and thinking that we were on God's mission and then, you know, sort of retreating home and say that didn't work out the way that, that we had planned and and what next. And that confusion of sort of like uh, God seemed to be with us. And now if he's not against us, we can't seem to find him anymore. Right. And that resonated with me both on a personal level, that just sort of feeling of whether it's an age thing, Gee, when it was younger, it was a lot easier to feel the presence of God. And now, where is he? I know that he's still there, but I don't see him as often or as readily. But also on a corporate s- scale, 
I, I think it was one of the reasons why the film resonated with me a lot more this time than the last time I watched it, because we're 11, 12 years into a very long and unpopular war right. in America where we went on a quest not necessarily to find the Holy Grail, unless weapons of mass destruction <laughs> are the Holy Grail, uh, but to find something assured of our eventual success because God was on our side and we were doing a righteous mission and are now kind of in that process of, okay, well, we're back. Things are not over, but they didn't happen the way that they wanted to. And that sense of confusion of what now? Confusion of what now, of why did this happen? Sure. You get the people, I think, who are going to be like Lancelot who say, the reason this happened is because of our own sin, individually or collectively. Right. God is punishing us or America as a nation for whatever transition. Uh, you get people like um, Guinevere who are like, no, that actually is... We were bad the, the, before. Well, we were bad before and that there was the actual quest itself or the thing that you failed at. There were problems in the way that you went about doing sure. it. Um, and you get plenty of people who are like Gawain in the film who are like, oh, those are, if I can quote primary colors, how many angels can dance on the head of the pin kinds of questions. Those are above my pay grade kinds of questions. And really what I'm dealing with is a kind of disillusionment of I put my faith not in principle, but in other people to model principles for me. And I'm more devoted to them, you know, there's that weird sort of exchange in in um, where Gawain is dying, and he sort of says, "It was my duty." I mean, they twice echo this, where it says, "It was my duty to do X," but my heart was, you know. Well, and that yeah, that scene I thought was very poignant. In this, I mean, he's dying because he attacked Lancelot, mm -hmm. um, and he attacked Lancelot because Lancelot had killed his cousin or brother right. or something. Um, in another, in another one of those lifted moments, lifted where, moments we, where, where we don't realize until <laughs> Gawain is dying of like, oh, that guy was your brother, and yeah. Lancelot killed him, and that was why you did yeah. it. And, and so, yeah, he's he's very much saying, yeah, it was my duty to you know avenge the death of my family member, but you know, my heart was still with with Lancelot. Mm -hmm. You know, I you know, it was not a wholehearted. You know, I'm going to go get Lancelot. It was like, oh, I got to do this because that's what the rules of society say I have to do. But really, he's a he's he's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, so don't blame him for whatever. And Todd, I'm really glad that you brought up that scene because I mean that maybe lets us wrap up a little bit closer to you know where we started, which was <laughs> this elliptical structure. Uh, but I want to merge that to the whole Christian question because sure. one of the things that really resonates to me in that elliptical structure is how many Christians I know um, in this day and age, and people in general, I shouldn't say Christians, people in general, who seem loathed in ways that I don't understand to go back and question assumptions that they have made or knowledge that mm -hmm. they think they have. Any of us who've lived a period in life will think, oh, I know what that was all about because I saw it. I have little bits and pieces of the narrative, and then I saw Gawain fighting Lancelot, so I know why he was doing it, and I know what that means. 
and then all of a sudden are confronted with this deathbed confession and said, oh, well, wait a minute. That there was something going on there that I didn't know or I didn't see. And when that's in a movie, we tend to get angry at the filmmaker. So well, why didn't you tell me that? Mm-hmm. You know, but, but maybe that's part of the point is that in a, life is not a movie. Right. And, and you don't get that. And yet there are still a lot of people that I know who sort of feel like somehow or another – they are in a movie in which the script has already been written by God and God has told them everything that they want to know and therefore are never willing to either when they witness someone, you know, say something that was like, oh, that's a new piece of evidence. Let me go back and reassess right. what it is that I think about everything, you know, that casts everything in a different light or whether it's something that they see to go back and reassess. It's like they're committed to their own interpretation of the narrative that they've lived right. up until that point. And when there's new information, then that confronts the Christian with the problem of, I'm either going to ignore that, bracket that, you know, pretend I didn't see that, or increasingly pretzel myself to fit it into the narrative that I have, that I think I have experienced, but really is only the narrative reconstruction of my interpretation where we experience life elliptically. And we have filled in those gaps sure. with what we – but when we, we fail to make the distinction between what we assume happened and what we actually saw happen. And, and certainly this is a film that, I mean, when it ended, you know, talk about structure, I didn't know what to do at the end because it just ends. Right. It just stops. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, it's over. Um, but that's the kind of an ending that does – in a sense, make you go back, at least for me, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, if that's the ending, I wasn't expecting that to be the ending, but if that's the ending, what does it? Well, can you tease that out a little bit? Because, I mean, it seems to me to have a very, a culmination. I mean, well, uh, yeah, I mean, and what I know from the Arthurian legend yeah. is perhaps it's, it's the, the narrative flow, mm-hmm. You know, as elliptical as it is, there is definitely a a movement in in, in a certain direction. And at least for me, and, and maybe this is part of the the lack of affect. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I didn't really. I mean, yeah, in terms of the story, in terms of here are the elements, this 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 this, and then there's the end. But it didn't have that emotional payoff. Okay. Um. It, it, you know, in terms of you know dramatic structure, I didn't feel a climax. All right. Okay. Um, and so there wasn't traditional narrative yeah, structure, structure rising action climax to now, Matt. And and I didn't really feel much of a climax. Okay. No, that that that's fair because again, climax is associated with emotion. Right. You know, when the emotion reaches its height, and, and structurally, it's probably there. Well, yeah. I mean, and narratively, there yes. there's what's Aristotle said. There's a beginning, a middle, and mm-hmm. an end. They're they're coming back from it. They have this. Uh, court shenanigans, and then there's, um, and, it, and in some ways, film talk about elliptical, but right, it's also somewhat circular. You yeah, know, the beginning and the end are very, very similar. In fact, to the point where I, I was wondering as we got to the end if, if we weren't, if the beginning wasn't a flashback or there was some. Now, I mean, this is a very mm-hmm. twenty, late twentieth century, twenty first century sort of thing where we start at the end, go back, and then right. end up. And, and we think that that's think that that's what happened beforehand, but right. it's really what happened at the end as a way of reinforcing the circularity of of things. Whereas, yeah, you know, in this case, you know, it's very clearly that the beginning and end are different time frames. Okay, but they're they are very similar. Mm-hmm. And so again, it, it is that kind of go back to the beginning, 
Or, or we've gone through all of this and we're still back to where we started from. Right. Well, so I, I might use the word resolution instead of end in yeah. the sense of it's hard to do a resolution if part of your structure and your purpose of your structure is to be very skeptical of resolution. Uh, or to be talking about confusion. Right. I mean, if, if what you're showing is this confusion, how does, a con- how does confusion end? Mm-hmm. You know, unless there is some explanation of clarity, but... This film doesn't give us that, mm-hmm. really. If we think about ways that we use film and, you know, whether we're looking for the spiritual themes in a film or maybe, it, and that what I'm beginning to feel with this film perhaps is that it is some sort of spiritual exercise, that lack of resolution, I mean, this film does what I want a film to do on a spiritual level, which is ask questions, goad me into thinking about questions and not tell me what to do. Yes. You know, not tell me this is how you're supposed to feel, but it, it gives me a mechanism to begin thinking about these things so that, you know, I then contemplate love or confusion or these various things that are there and come to my conclusions. Mm-hmm. Well, um, anything else you want to add? No, it's good. All right. Todd, thanks for your input and thank you everyone for listening. If you've got questions or comments about this episode or suggestions for other films you'd like to hear us talk about, please drop us a line at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me, Ken, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Moorfield or read my reviews at the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.